welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome, adventurers, to episode 46 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. My name's Patrick. Hey, King Scott here. And, King, we've got a bit of a side quest today, don't we? We were playing a real fresh, new prototype type of game, and yeah, there's some cool stuff in it. Now, adventurers, you might be asking yourself, aren't they just going to give this a high-quality, high-praise review because they got a free copy of the game? Scott, did you get a copy? Um, I've been looking around, and I'd say no. No, I did not get a copy. (laughs) You know what? I did. It's a prototype copy. It is a cardboard box with very minimal components. It's not the game. We want to be clear that while we did receive a prototype to play with, we had it for about three weeks. We passed it on to the next reviewer. Did you get paid? I don't think so. I guess the gist here is this is a not paid preview. Uh, we're, we're giving it to you straight adventures. Yes, we are. I mean, it's one of those things where a lot of times people can say, oh, they're just glad handing all this stuff to make it look good for them and they get more stuff and everything. No, I mean, there are things that we don't like. There are things that we do like. We want to make sure that you know that we are not just liking something because we got a copy or anything like that at all. In fact, whenever a game gets a side quest, that's usually evidence that it's one that we got the prototype, we played it, and we liked it enough to invite the designer on. So whenever you hear these these side quest episodes, adventures, know that this is probably a good game. There's a reason why we turned it into an episode. Yes, because it would be awfully awkward to have a interview with a designer and then do a little talk about it and say how much we hated that game. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know about you, but... I don't really fancy having that kind of relationship with people. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So do we want to do the whole banter thing or do we just want to kind of dive right into things today? I think we ought to dive into it because, hey, we don't want to keep our guest waiting here. I mean, he's coming from a long way away. (laughs) Yeah, we got a meal after we do our walkthrough and 8-bit breakdown. So uh, why don't we just get right to the walkthrough? Why don't you take this one? Okay, on it. Designed by Emil Larson of Sun Tzu Games, live on Kickstarter, Rogue Angels Legacy of the Burning Suns is a character-driven narrative campaign game for one to four players. At the start of the campaign, each player will receive an envelope which shows their character personalities as well as an overview of the character. This envelope houses all of the cards and upgrades you might receive throughout play, making it a handy save-your-game storage solution. To begin your campaign, you'll read a bit of story. As the narrative concludes, you'll be instructed on how to set up the board for the mission that you're currently on, as well as what your first objective is and how much time you have to do it, outlined in a number of turns. Perhaps the players need to break down a door and enter the laboratory, and they have six turns to do so. Players will each have a hand of cards used to perform actions during play. The cost to play these cards is pretty interesting here. If a card has a cost of three, that doesn't mean that you need three resources or money or anything to play that card. It simply means that it goes onto your personal cooldown track in the third space. See, at the bottom of your player board, there's a cooldown track, which after each turn, the cards on it will slide to the left. Effectively, you won't get a card back until it slides off of the cooldown track and back into your hand. Basic actions, though, have a cost of zero, so simple movement, for example, is always available. When your objective is complete, you'll refer to the narrative for your mission. 
Typically, this will involve story progression, like what you found in that laboratory, perhaps a vial being protected by two guards and a scientist. The narrative segues to instruction on how to modify the state of the board, say, adding those two guards and a scientist and a point of interest to represent the vial. Next, a new objective will be given, such as capture that vial, and again, a time limit will be set. Should players fail to meet one of these objectives during a mission, they have failed in there to restart the mission. Otherwise, play continues until each objective has been met and the mission complete. Now, I don't want to sell the narrative portion short here. It's not an overwhelming amount of text, but in the incremental implementation of objectives, the game can add story during play. Furthermore, sometimes players will have a decision to make while reading the narrative, which can alter the next objective in some way. I should also point out that Rogue Angel's Legacy of the Burning Suns has a legacy element. Your character board has a space under your character image in which you'll be filling in spaces throughout the campaign, and it determines your character personality. The type of character you evolve into can have profound effects as the campaign progresses. Furthermore, there will be times when the players are given an opportunity to like score, loot, and upgrades. In these instances, new cards are going to become available for use during play. Now, as with any walkthrough, especially those for preview games such as this, there is much more to the game than I just went over, but hopefully this gives you a sense of what to expect when this game hits your table. Now let's learn a little bit more level-up style in the 8-bit breakdown of Rogue Angels Legacy of the Burning Suns. For a thousand years, the Galactic Assembly of Sovereign Civilizations has governed the Burning Suns by providing a forum for cooperation between the most advanced races of the galaxy. The longest peace in galactic history was achieved, a truly golden age of harmony and prosperity. But however well-intentioned their foundation, however principled its leaders, no civilization can endure forever. Eventually, inevitably, the assembly failed. War consumes the galaxy. Ignited by the spark of insurrection, the flames are fanned by old grudges and new rivalries, by unchecked greed and overweening pride, and perhaps by something yet darker lurking in the depths of time and space. As the member civilizations draw their battle lines and stake their claims to stars and systems, lives and loyalties are torn asunder. From Eva Ariel to Panacea, from Nominus to Modeus, people who have only ever known peace and privilege must reckon with the new, harsh truth that the galaxy isn't as safe a place as they believed. Patrick, thank you so much for the walkthrough there. I think we need to dive right into Rogue Angels, Legacy of the Burning Suns. Bit number one, art and components. What'd you think? Well, we can't say a whole lot here because it's a prototype. So there were a lot of like substitute pieces. Like it was a very, here's some things to get started with so that you can actually play the game. So I don't think we can give a very fair shake to art and components. Uh, well, maybe not the components, but the art. Scott, you saw that uh, that campaign book, the file with me. It's, it's looking pretty sharp. I got to tell you what, everyone's going for the miniatures, 3D miniatures, everything else. I still think at times there is something to be said about just cardboard stand-ups. These little standees that you had for your characters, the artwork was incredible. I mean, truly, oh, yeah. it, it blew my mind. It sucked me right into this whole new world that I really don't know that much about, but 
It's really an amazing job that they did with the artwork, putting all the information you need on the uh, standees themselves as far as their health and their like movement. The shields, the health, oh, yeah. I mean, really, they, they thought of everything on this really worked out beautifully. And, you know, for just being a prototype, I want to say he gave us four maps, double-sided maps. And, boy, I'd say the Kickstarter has to have a ton of content. What with maps and cards and envelopes and characters, there's going to be something like uh, like a dozen or – well, we're going to talk to Emil to get the, the lowdown on how many characters. Our prototype had three, and there's a lot going on with those three just for the introductory handful of missions – I'm excited to see what's going to be in this Kickstarter. Well, so yeah, before you go any further with this, I think we ought to go right into bit number two here because it, it flows with what you're thinking there. The theme and immersion. He's got a whole story. Yes. Like there's lore all around this universe. This isn't like, okay, I have a game idea, so I've got to create the lore. It sounds like the lore came first here and there's a lot of it. Yeah. I was sucked into this story immediately. So many times you'll read a book, you'll read the first couple chapters, you're like, uh, they're trying to get me into it. Uh, it's kind of interesting. I don't know. I mean, I might give it a try. And then it just kind of like falls to the wayside. From the start, from the artwork on the standees and what the characters look like, I was completely sucked into everything. Absolutely amazed me. And I'll tell you what, the narrative of the game being drip fed yes. as you're playing. Now, I kind of saw something similar with uh, like when I did Tainted Grail. I talked about that last year, I think. You play the game a bit and then something happens and you can get a little bit more story, but it's not always linear. Like if I revisit a location, I know what's going to be on the page if I opt to take a nap or if I opt to talk with the witch. Whereas this, it's it's not linear as in on rails because the story branches, but it's linear in that you're not going to be reading the same piece of story that you've already read because you're making the same decision. You're going to do something in the game. It's going to provide you with narrative and then a new objective. And you're going to start on that objective. And when you complete it, it's going to give you something new to read. So you're progressively like, okay, what's going, what's happening in the story? Okay, now I've got to play it out. Now, what's different in the story? And now I've got to play it out. That, that drip feeding of story, that was impressive. I really enjoyed that. That got me right into the boots of my character. Yeah, this here, it it's so tough because there's a little bit that goes into each and every one of our bits. I'm going to have more to say on this, but it's going to mix in with the complexity on bit three. So you got anything else for theme and immersion? No, let's get right to complexity. Okay, complexity. Like Patrick said, this game is drip fed. I mean, you go a little bit they feed you a little more. You go a little bit, you feed a little bit more. In a way, a lot of times I've seen people do this with their board games where they set up a big board. They will have pieces of paper over in the new places they're going to go into. So you can't see exactly what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. This one didn't have that. As you opened the up and got through the mission, it would say, now then this is what's going to happen. Add this, add this, add this. But it was never like, overwhelmingly complex he knocked out all mm -hmm. the extraneous rules and just made it a nice streamlined curve to play with and i think part of what makes it easier to grasp is that if there is something different if there's going to be a variable inserted into a mission he could just put that in between two of your objectives. So the first objective might be something relatively simple. So you do it. The next objective, well, that might be a little bit more convoluted, but you only have to read this little bit, insert this one rule, and your gameplay is is basically the same with one minor change.
change and it changes the the complexity that well the complexion of the mission and of the next objective i would say the game though is it's middleweight this isn't an easy game it's not going to be something that you're going to be able to to just pick up and, and get going but it's not a hard game either it's action selection based on cards in your hand your basic actions always come back i think maybe the unique areas here uh, well you got that cooldown track mm-hmm. right that was that's a little unique compared with most other games of this style uh, you're not using mana to cast your spells or anything like that you're not using a resource you're strictly if i use it i'm not going to get it back right away you know this this is my big kaboom I only get to do it once every few turns. Yeah, this was a really neat way of doing it. I've seen this done one other time was whenever World of Warcraft had a miniatures game out. And whenever you would cast a spell, Mm -hmm. you had two dials underneath your figures. One was your health, and the other one was a cooldown dial. I thought that was such a neat mechanic they put into it because you would see it would dial down. You get it closer and closer to whenever you can actually cast that spell again. But with this, I think it works out even better because you actually see it on your player mat. You see that card there and you see it move closer and close and you get excited like, okay, let's sign, get everything lined up where we need to go. So this will come into my hand at the exact moment I actually need it. So I guess the resource is time. Yeah, yeah. And it just, it worked out so well. I really, really enjoyed that track there. Bit number four is the rulebook and the learning curve. We learned this one together. We just sat down. Okay, let's let's just normally, Scott, when you and I want to play a game, one of us right. does the rulebook and does the teach. The other one just kind of shows up. This one, it was like, you know what? We're just going to do this together. I want to say it took about 15 minutes going in blind and being able to play the game. Any sort of questions that we had were pretty easy to find the answers for. And as far as learning curve, I mean, we've played similar style games like these dudes on a map a mm-hmm. gloomhaven very similar card-based dudes on a map uh, zombicide for example if you have some familiarity with those games you're gonna be able to play this pretty comfortably and i think most folks are gonna know what they're doing within a couple yeah of and turns. also i think if i remember correctly he had a wonderful index at the back of the book and then also with the kickstarter coming out he's gonna have just one that you can download on your ipad or whatever and use and he's going to have it set up so you can search through and find out what you're looking for. So he made it very simple for you to find any questions you may have. That, I think, is one of the main things that people want in their rule books. They want to be able to get into their game, play it as quickly as possible. Anything comes up, make it easy for them to find the stuff. And he's definitely done this. So we've got a narrative-driven, sort of a dungeon-crawling game. We know a bit now about the rulebook, the learning curve, the complexity, etc., but where's the meat of the game? Bit number five. Scott, where's the meat of the gameplay here? The meat of the gameplay, I think, really has to do with the cards. You really need to figure out how much time do you want to use. I mean, are you in the midst of a big melee and you need to get cards going boom, 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 boom? Or is someone else taking care of that and then you can pump yourself up and cast that one big attack that you need? Mm -hmm. And the ability of finding out little by little what each next little bit is going to be. It's a, a game that you play before, but in a different way. I think that the narrative that he put into it, the universe he's using, just really draws you in. It's something I've never really experienced before. I played tons of games, but still. Part of the meat of the game is the story, isn't it? I think so, yeah. 
We oftentimes see story in a game like this uh, presented at the beginning of the mission and then go. You're just left to your devices, go slaughter all the baddies or kill all the zombies. Mm -hmm. But in the way that that story is incrementally given to the players, if you're looking for a story-driven game where part of the fun is being able to see that story unfold before you, and for that matter, this being a, a having some legacy elements, you know, having that story affect your game, having decisions that you may or may not be able to make based on your character and your personality, in a way, this is one of the first games that, to me, it, it really makes the story be part of the meat of the game. There's there's a lot of these story-driven games where, like, I'll just skip over the story, gloss mm -hmm. right through, because I, I want to get back to the game. No, here, actually reading the story, reading that narrative, that is part of this game. And the ability to, you have the, the objective, you have to activate computer consoles, mm -hmm. or you need to open the door. It's not just kill everybody in here, then move on. Yeah, he can tinker with that and play around with what you need to do next. Hence, the story is yes. part of the meat. Mm -hmm. Well, that's enough about meat. Let's talk replayability and variability. So oftentimes we have these campaigns where you're given just... No, I don't want to say oodles. I don't want to use the word oodles. You have oodles of missions. Uh, in this box, I think he said there's something like 70 missions in the box. And Emil told us that you're going to see about 40 in a given campaign. Instantly, for a lot of us, we think, okay, so, you know, I've done Gloomhaven. It gets kind of samey, like I'm seeing the same cards and playing the same cards. Yeah, the bad guys are a little bit different, but I'm effectively doing the same thing from one play to the next. I think it's always a fair question. So, well, now, wait a minute. Is this going to end up going down a similar path? I think while parts of the story are going to be on rails because they have to be... I'm betting that you're going to find yourself taking different turns, discovering new things every time you play it through. Your cards are going to evolve. You're going to have stickers that you get to put on your cards, so you get to modify them. You're going to get new cards. Uh, that legacy element, I think, is what's going to keep the game fresh as your characters develop over time. Uh, that said, we got to do the intro. We got four missions to work with in this, this sort of prototype playthrough and playtest, so it, it's hard for me to say... Oh, how variable is it going to be? How replayable is it going to be? I was going to go down the same route as that because we did just get like a taste of the game. Really, that was it. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, granted, this was a really amazing appetizer. I really enjoyed it. It, it yeah, had the nice more. hot sauce on the side. It had nice crisp <laughs> texture. I digress. It's early and I'm still kind of hungry. You don't really want to say all the variability or replayability is. You don't want to be unfair on either side there. You don't want to say, oh, my God, the replayability is going to be amazing. And then you find out that it does get kind of samey or mm -hmm. there's so much variability, but there's only so much there. We were only given so much. But what we can say from what we saw I mean, the sky's the limit with everything The tools here. are there. Yeah, to be fair to the game, the tools are there to keep things fresh and varied, even on your 20th play. But in fairness to the adventurers, we got to play four missions. You know, we can't really attest to how replayable it may exactly, be. Exactly, huh? exactly. But what we got, oh my God, I mean, you've got like <laughs> the finest chefs here putting all their ingredients in together. Oh, Would you eat something before we record? I should have. Oh, man. Oh. I, I, Scott, yeah. let's talk downsides. Bit number seven. Every game has some things that might not appeal to everyone. This comes with that albatross that many of the big campaign games have, and I alluded to it earlier in that things can become samey, but I think also with, with any of these 
big campaign games, you need an hour or two per mission times 40 missions. That's a lot of game. And I know for me, it can be very difficult to keep a group together to see our campaign games all the way to the end. It took us a year to do Risk Legacy, and that's only 15 games. Uh, <laughs> and there were times where like two guys couldn't show up or somebody had a date that night. And it was like, oh, my goodness, this is getting pushed back again. And sometimes it even became like, oh, well, we're all meeting. All of us are going to be there. Well, I guess we have to play Risk Legacy because if we don't, who knows when we're going to get to it. Maybe the downside for me is that you have to have a group that's committed to playing this game. That's an upside for people that have that group. For me, that can be, be a hurdle. The cool thing about this, I agree, doing campaign games can be so, so hard. Real life, real life sucks because it gets in the way of you having fun. But he did put in something here where people can jump in and out during the campaign. So if yeah, you have a date with that girl that you've been waiting to go out with for ages, or you have that family dinner you have to go to to make sure that everyone knows that everything's fine in your life and everything's good. Those kind of things get in the way, and it's unfortunate. But being able to jump in and out of the game as needed, this kind of gives you that out to play a great big campaign game without the restrictions of what some of those big campaign games do. Okay, so if your group has some trouble meeting up or getting everybody together, then in theory, like there is a silver lining here. He's yes. thought of that ahead of time too. Okay, okay. Let's talk, was it fun and who's it for? Fun? Yes! I thought the, I thought, honestly, I thought I would hate the drip-fed narrative. Like it would take my mind out of the game. Like I just want to play. Why do I have to go read this book? but I loved it. Uh, it keeps that story in your head while it's also going to alter the current mission that keeps it fresh, that keeps it engaging. I can't imagine a mission getting stale because you don't know what it's going to ask you to do next. Who's it for? I think if you enjoy narrative games with rich story, developing characters, I mentioned Tainted Grail. If you're one of those folks who enjoyed Gloomhaven, but you found the story to be a little bit lacking, you wanted a little bit more of it, check out Rogue Angels. I think it's going to satisfy in that regard. <laughs> What did you think, Scott? Is Rogue Angels fun? That is a resounding yes coming from me. The universe sucked me in. The main thing that mm. got in my mind was I had the feeling of Firefly right away. But it's like Firefly another thousand years in the future where you have all these alien races that are coming together. Emil did a wonderful job with this. I'm super excited for this to come out. I think that a lot of people need to keep this on their radar and take a look at it when it comes out, because I think he's got a definite winner here. So it sounds like a thumbs up from Level Up. That's a thumbs up from me. <laughs> All right. And likewise, I tell you what, man, one of the best things that the podcast has done, it's given us the opportunity to talk to these designers behind the scenes, learn a little bit more about the process, the work that goes into games. I'm thrilled whenever we get to talk with them and whenever we get to share that with the adventurers. So, I mean, we got a meal waiting for us. What do you say we talk to them and uh, learn a little bit more about the game? I think that is a, uh, a very good decision there, Patrick. Yes. We got some transition music. <laughs> All right, adventurers, as we said, we have him here in the flesh. Emil Larson, creator of Rogue Angels. Emil, how are you today? I am good, thank you. 
Hey, well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for, first of all, for sending us the prototype. We had a blast playing it. I'm excited to see what's to come further down the road with this game, but we wanted to get some words straight from you, uh, uh, some thoughts about the process of development and whatnot. So we're going to grill you for the next half an hour. Okay. Mm, sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> all right. First thoughts, the early stages of development. So you have this idea. I notice in the games that you've already created, you have a Rogue Angels game. And I presume this comes from that universe, right? Ah, yeah. The the, the Burning Suns uh, was my first published game uh, back in... Yeah, it 2013. started in 13, yeah. And then it, it had some delays and all that, but uh, it all got out there. And um, the universe itself kind of grew with, I got an author on board to start writing about it and, you know, publish some books and, and things and ideas. I thought it would be nice to dive into that universe again. So after my, my second game, I thought, why not go back and, and revisit that world? You have done games before, and yeah, we mm. had a, a blast playing it. What made you decide to go from just playing games to designing games? What's the X factor that got you into doing that? Well, if you look at my personality test, which I've taken a lot of, I, I am an explorative type. So I like to tinker with things, and I like to turn things into something else. And I, I've always done that. Mm -hmm. And it all started out with slightly upgrading already existing games, right? And it could be more fun if it was this and that. And, you know, you try your, your way with a upgraded Monopoly and you still figure out that that's not really a good game either <laughs> way. So, and uh, yeah, then you, you take it from there. And, uh, and then it was a 4X as my next game, which was probably a bad idea. But, you know, you live and you learn. So you thought that you were better than the designers of the great games that you were playing? <laughs> no. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I have learned the hard, the hard way that ooh, uh, I am not better at anything. And it, it's just, and that's uh, probably the marvelous thing is that you always discover that people have some crazy talents and know so many things. And when you explore that, that's when you learn yourself and then you grow yourself, right? into making better games. And I definitely had to grow into making Rogue Angels because if it wasn't for all the falls I made in the other games, this would not be as good a game or as well-received as it has been. Before we get more into Rogue Angels, just to get a little bit more of your history, before you started developing games, what was your favorite game? What's that like? Oh, this is the one that I grew up on. For a lot of gamers, they might say, oh, Catan or <clears throat> Axis and Allies. Yeah. What's your game? Um, computer games in general, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. I've always been a big, uh, like, StarCraft fan. I love the KOTOR, Knights of the Old Republic series, uh, and then, of course, uh, Mass Effect when I got to that. So I should probably just get, you know, very honest <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> uh -oh. I have I have 63 rated board games on Board Game Geek, and that's not all the games I've played. But to say that it's... More than 100 would also be a little bit of a stretch. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have not played many board games for a board game designer. I have ah, not. Okay. Well, you know what? There so. is a lot of... Uh, there's a <laughs> Board games are very adjacent to video mm. games, and I think that the the mechanisms that are applied <clears throat> to a video game to to make those worlds tick oftentimes translate very well to board games. And, and part mm. of the challenge in board gaming is how do we take something digital like that and find an analog mm. way to make that engaging and thematic as video game might be, like in StarCraft, for example. What's the best race in StarCraft? <laughs> uh, the most interesting is definitely Zerg. 
Okay, yes, yep. he can stay. He can stay. <laughs> Scott, were you ever into StarCraft? I really wasn't. I, I play a little bit here and there, but I did enjoy the idea of exploring and having new things appear as it went along. And that was something I definitely noticed whenever we got a play of this. Each time you cleared an objective, something else appeared. And then you cleared an objective, something else appeared. I was talking to Patrick trying to figure out what was the thing that made me enjoy this so much. And I think that was it there. It was kind of giving me the feeling of a video game without playing a video game. And it was a great feeling. Yeah, it seems like there must have been some kind of like bolt of lightning moment when you were creating Rogue Angels where you said, you know what, I want story behind this game. I want a, I want a solid game, but I want story but I don't want it to be up front. So many games that are story driven, they tell you some story and then you embark on the mission. And what that does is it, it kind of limits the game performing the game's mechanisms, kind of like the GM behind the scenes. A game like Zombicide, uh, mm. the game functions as the GM, right? Your game allows you to avoid things like having spawn points because the story will interact with you at various points throughout a mission. That's not something that you see often. Yet you see it sometimes in like a storytelling game, like a like a Tainted Grail, but those are very, um, mm. we'll say they're very uh, story focused. Not that this isn't, but this is very meaty. There's a lot of game <clears throat> Gameplay yep. here. It balances the two very well. And the interjection of the story in order to create more challenges on the board while also giving that drip of theme to the player. I, I just thought it was excellent, but that had to take a ton of play testing and modifying. So you have this idea. You want to take this universe and you wanted to create this, this Rogue Angels game and, and set it in the universe. Tell us a little bit about the process of actually why you wanted the game to turn out this way. Are we on the right track? Like you did mm. indeed want this to be a drip fed story as you play yeah yeah it, it was there are many factors to it so one of the thing is that i wanted to create a story that was fluent with the gameplay so that you can say when when you play a, a play mechanism and stuff if they are grounded in the story then they're easier to explain they're easier to mm -hmm. remember so all this like the more fluent you make these connections the better and it also creates reason. One thing that stood out to me when I played Arkham Horror, the card game it was, and uh, there's like an, a narrative going on and it's reading in third person perspective. So it's like you walk into the room and you suddenly, f uh, you know, feel uh, something crawling down your spine, you know, like this kind of like, and I as a gamer is not su uh, susceptible to, to that because it doesn't work. You cannot say I get scared. You have to put me in a position where I'm scared. You cannot just read out loud, you are scared. What I really wanted was to have these small cutscenes, these small in-between scenes where other characters would explain how they feel or what is going on through mm -hmm. an almost like live action cutscene or a you know, first-person view so that you as a player can react as you want to react or how you feel you will react. I got to that point. I was like, I, I know I have to go this way. And, and many were, when we tested it in the beginning, were a bit hesitant because it was like, ah, will this work? Like, is it really the right way to frame it? And I think it is. After like, I've, I've play tested and observed for 150 <coughs> games now, and it seems to be working very, very well. It's easier for people to read and to comprehend and also to get in the mood of exactly what I want people to be. I'm not telling them what mood to be in. I am presenting them a situation 
hopefully converting them to be in this mood of, oh, no, there are some enemies coming or we need to, to do this or that. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what else that does. A couple of things. One, Scott, you remember we talked about cinematic experiences yes. in board games. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, Emil, when we play a game, when we set it up to learn it for the first time, and this is part of what we did with this and we put all the pieces out there and excellent prototype, by the way, we're like, well, we don't have this marker yet, so we're going to use this one. And I, I think this <laughs> tokens for that. So everything worked out very mm. smoothly. <laughs> We don't typically read through like the text and the flavor. It's like, okay, game one, we got to figure out how to actually manage the game and, and mechanically function within the parameters of the rule sets. We didn't do that for this one. I had an idea in, in reading what you said about the game. I was like, okay, I, I get the feeling that this is going to be one where we do want to read. So from the very first playthrough that we had, it was, okay, I'm going to go ahead and read these. And a lot of our game, because we're having to also read the rules too, was mm -hmm. sitting and just kind of reading back and forth. But yeah. I'm glad that I did. In our review portion where Scott and I talked about our thoughts on the games and our playthroughs, we actually talked a bit about the fact that you do feel like you're watching a like you can envision what's going on. So many times a board game wants you to do that, but it mm -hmm. falls short. This one, you do start to like, oh, it's that guy again. Hey, what's that guard? Ah, I pissed him off because I went the you know, he told me to sit put and mm. I didn't. I think that you really did a great job of capturing that. Cool. Thanks. I'm I'm happy to hear that. And that is exactly what I what I wanted from it was this more getting in the mood. And mm -hmm. and it also reinforced the table talk. You know, with people when they're sitting and playing that they're like, first of all, some people fall deep into character, you know, when they read Embracious or whoever they might be, like they really dive into that. Uh, but just in general, they, they have a collective memory of the character instead of having the story kind of keep reminding you about uh, who this is or how that person is perceived show don't tell right right let the players do that for themselves it makes it a more impressionable image in our minds now emil during our playthrough we had three mm -hmm. characters we had a couple missions to go through the map i mean a lot of stuff there and it just expounded and mm. opened up to us as we played so from what i understand here there's going to be a 106 page campaign book is that correct no, that's f quite far from the truth. The the hundred and six pages are yeah, but that's the hundred and six pages are just the twelve missions that I have for now sketched and is you know I've completed for the tabletop simulator. So oh for my the final, goodness. there is uh, seventy missions, and in general they tend to be around ten pages each. The missions Holy uh, because cow. it starts to ramp up as decisions and branches uh, throughout the missions, right? So we are ending on at least seven hundred pages. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> so. so that's seventy missions. Now I understand that if you're mm. playing through a campaign, <clears throat> you're looking at playing about forty. I take it that. Whether mm, or not yep. you have certain missions to perform are going to be that's going to be based on decisions that you make. Yeah, yeah. The branching starts already after mission three ish, uh, without spoiling anything per se. And the branching will then sometimes slip back into there will be some essential missions and all that, right? And then branch mm -hmm. out again. Then there are branchings within the missions that I have a, um, again, without spoiling anything, but the chapter, the first 12 missions that you can play on, on TCS, the last chapter ends, has five different endings, depending on some of the legacy elements that you already accumulated. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, you can see where that is heading. 
and we're talking 20 different playable characters, at least for now. Who know, you know, I, I'm presuming that maybe the Kickstarter, if you have a, a wild success, maybe there'll be a calling for a, a, an extra character to it. I don't want to put words in your mouth here. It just <laughs> no, no, would no, be a natural be, uh, thought. Yeah, there is no expansions or any... I'm not going to Kickstarter to add more to something that I want to be as I envision it. What I will do is trying to upgrade all the components and such things, you know, which is a financial perspective, but I'm not going to add new characters. I would in the future, if everything is cool, I would like to make a standalone and then add more characters and all that stuff. But that is for another time. I am a very pragmatic person and very straightforward when it comes to all this. So Kickstarter is Kickstarter, and I know there's a lot to do uh, and there are many ways to approach a Kickstarter, but I, I go in there full transparency about what I need and why I need it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Now, I look at this here, and I see there's a lot of timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly things going on here that whenever this shows up on my porch, whenever I kickstart it, I feel like I'm going to have to say goodbye to my wife for at least a month that I'm going to be playing this thing. And I really think that one of the things you should have in the Kickstarter is like a permission note that you sign that we can give to our significant others so we can get out of family functions, things like that, that this is important. We must get through this signed by Neil. (laughs) Yeah, like an invitation to an anniversary or something like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. Kind of thing. We're on the same yeah, page. Yeah. <laughs> you know, while yeah. we're on that, Emil, we're talking four editions to play through an entire campaign. And I noticed that it's at a, about 120 minutes, about two hours per mission. Mm-hmm. I will say our first mission. Now, granted, it's the introductory mission. But even with kind of grokking the rules a little bit, we were able to get through that in a, in a little less than two hours, probably an hour and mm-hmm. a half. Yeah. Um, but we're presuming about two hours per mission times 40 missions. So you've got a ton of gameplay in this box. But I want to get back to, you said, the legacy element. Now, we had a, a hand of cards to play with. We had our basic actions and we had the, uh, the we'll say the, the better actions, the cool actions, the ones that we wanted to <laughs> use and, and get off that cooldown track. I'm guessing that there's going to be ways that we can get new cards as we play through the campaign and new weapons and mm. you know things off of somebody's body that we salvage. Uh, tell us a little mm. bit about how the game is going to change. I know you'd want to keep it spoiler free, but so that listeners have an idea of what to expect throughout the campaign. Yeah. The first thing is that the legacy elements, the destructive part of the game, you might say, are all confined within individual characters. So the character envelope that you get with the different content for that character, those things can change, but that is within that confinement. So you will not have something else that will be changed or permanently uh, changed. So that means you can go back and play again with some of the other 20 characters. So it's all confined, and that's also how I could, if it is a success, I could have uh, these replacement packages so people could you know, resell it or they could uh, experience again with the same uh, characters and so on. Mm-hmm. Other than that, the legacy element is, of course, how your character progresses, develop its personality, that you, yeah. you, you, you change that. And then you get to upgrade your cards because the cards will have small stickers on a sticker sheet. So these action cards, you probably noticed there were some missing spots or some spots that yep. were not upgradable. And those can be upgraded through these stickers. So as your personality evolves, you will see that you should also 
fine-tune your weapons and abilities towards that personality, right? Mm -hmm. And in that way, it gives you a two-pronged approach to how to optimize your your character, but some of it is not completely under your control because your personality is based on how you play. It's not just based on what you want. And there will, no, there will no. also be um, cards. There will also be card packs that you will be looting uh, along the way. And that's because I want to keep as much as it as shared value for all players involved. So if you loot a pack of new cards, then that will belong to this ship to the entire crew so you can add those on to missions and figure out what what should you bring along for this mission right you're not going to have that one person in the party that uh, doesn't do any of the killing just goes around scooping up the treasures no exactly (laughs) i like what you said there though that the personality of the character uh, is going to want you to to go in a certain direction but also the personality of the player matters when scott and i were playing he had the the one of the three intro characters he provided his was clearly meant to be the sniper he had the the bonus damage for the card that was four to eight spaces away so he kind of wanted to sit back and plunk people from afar my guy had the blade attack i I forget the name of it but i could go up and and hit adjacent guys all with like a whirlwind of blades and i thought man i want to be the sniper i want to be scott's (laughs) guy but you could see how like scott can play that character and develop it so that he does want to be a little bit more sneaky uh, incorporate a little bit more espionage into into the way that he plays and scott's sneaky so it's like a double whammy (laughs) your own personality (laughs) combines perfectly with the character patrick we're going to have a discussion after we're done here Can we talk a little bit more about the personalities? These are the four colors underneath the image of a character on the character card. And we're noticing that there are spots where it says, if you accomplish this, go ahead and mark off a portion Mm. of one of those colors. Now, our assumption moving forward is that there's going to be decisions that you might be able to make that are not allowed to be made if you have full if you're fully we'll say Mm. hot-headed or if can you elaborate a little bit more on the personalities because that seems to be the primary character development throughout the campaign yeah the the personality diagram for for the characters is one of the primary development for for each character that's correct and it is both a game mechanic thing because it allows you to have this technical upgrade of different things you you want to utilize right from a mm-hmm. game mechanic perspective but it's also a role playing aspect because you can use some of that personality for example if you have a lot of inspiring you might be able to talk a guard down from you know trying to beat you up or something or if you have a lot of dominant you might be able to threaten somebody to to do uh, another thing right mm-hmm. so and and i wanted to be that balance so that you have an i you have a some opportunities to for other branches right uh, other story developments based on your character and how you built that character right so it's very much a i want to dip into both the rpg and the combat and the mechanics in general but without going so deep that it becomes cumbersome or it becomes a, a lot of rules and extra elements right and i think that you achieved that we we stressed a bit prior to having you on that whenever you have some story interjection in our case it was maybe a paragraph it might be two characters chatting with each other and then it'll give a few very simple instructions for how to modify the map. When we mentioned uh, earlier, you don't have to have spawn points. That What I mean by that is, say the players take their turn, the game spawns enemies. Players take their turn, the game spawns enemies. Not here. 
In this game, the players are given a, something that they have to do, an objective. Uh, uh, mm. Go hack this computer so, or hack a console. You hack the console and you've completed that objective. And now what you've done is said, okay, now that you've done that, read these two paragraphs. And that's where it's like, oh, somebody from the ship is buzzing in. And one of the guards, you hear a guard from another room, you're able to, to play in the middle of the mission. Then you're able to say, okay, spawn two guys here and one guy way over there. You don't know what's coming next. You don't know where the spawn point is. And yet none of it is difficult. It's all confined to there's a quick image of the map, maybe two paragraphs of dialogue. And like we were setting up the enemy card. And Scott, you remember you said, well, how do you know if it's red setup or yellow setup? And I said, oh, it just it says here's the name of the enemy card. And it's got a red background. So it starts red side up. So intuitive. It was very well done. The other thing I really like, too, about that, whenever you flip that over, you have the number of action points that you have to get the complete the mission. You don't know what it's going to be until you get to that part. So you're ticking down, ticking down, ticking down. We're like, oh, God, we're almost done. And then you get that extra little breather whenever you get a new mission started. And There's it's just, tension. Yeah. Mm. It's just such a great little mechanic added there. Mm. Yeah. It's actually that that's why I put the enemy activation right after the mission update was to create tension because Mm -hmm. I had so much control over where do I want to put the enemies? What do they do? They have the first move. I can decide whether or not they should take the yellow or the red side first, right? I can go in all these directions and, and by providing the different bases and the enemies, I can really sue the experience as I want it to be, you know, felt for the players, right? So it gives a lot of control. And also by having this this clock on and making sure that it's actually just renewed every time for each. That means if you finish something way before time, when you go to the next segment, you do not have that extra time. Because mm-hmm. if I had to balance through an entire mission like that, it would end up being sloppy sometimes, right? It, it, yeah. But here I can really confine people to the tension I need them to be or the feeling I need them to have, right? Mm-hmm. I know that we have a Kickstarter on the horizon. So everyone's looking at that. They get excited for it. They get all jazzed. Get what that notification. Can, yes, yes. <laughs> what can someone look forward to whenever they click on the button there and see Rogue Angels Kickstarter? What can they see whenever that pops up? Well, they will hopefully see an emotional project, a project with a lot of love. I think you will be pleasantly surprised when you see the trailer. It's really something special. I want people to, to I mean, again, I like I said before, I'm, I'm very simple. So I have two pledge levels. I will go straight into the heart and, and soul of the game. And mm-hmm. I will just provide what needs to be there in order to have the experience I want people to to have. So well, that's wonderful. Can, Instead of getting one and then you're like, well, I need to add that. Do I need to add that? Do <laughs> yeah. I, that's wonderful to hear that. Yeah. That's just how I, I want it to be. Like It's also a, a thing about how, uh, of course, I've learned by burning my hands on... on <laughs> on uh, <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> on, on something about add-ons and, and having expansions and or having something new in plastic and new in whatnot and mm-hmm. and so on, right? So you, you also have to be very pragmatic about how you want to execute the project, basically, right? There will be two different pledges. One is without the campaign book, where you will get digital access to it so that it will be a, oh. a web application that you can access from any 
any device, not not a, an app or and all that stuff, but a, a a web application that anyone can access. Okay, uh, that can save your progression, of course, and you know, like you make sure you go through the the right path and all that, because the books will be three. Or so kilos by themselves. So, <laughs> you know, those who want to save on shipping and CO two and all that, I, I want them to have that option, right? Mm-hmm. And then the a bit larger pledge, of course, where you get the printed uh, campaign books. <laughs> okay, I'll be that guy. I'll be the kid Christmas one. I want to know what the bits are in the box because I saw you said that there's four maps in the prototype, and there's a spiral bound book of maps. Oh man, that's going to be so awesome! Mm-hmm. It's going to be colorful and going to open. There's going to be these standees for the characters with the dials. You have a custom dial on the bottom mm. to track health that you're working on. Tell us a little bit about the actual components. I I like to open a box and I like to play with all the bits before I actually play the game. That makes me feel good in side so what, what am i going to be playing with in there it will be uh, high quality cardboard uh, for sure like uh, if everything goes well and i have been talking for almost half a year with ludofact which is a, a fine manufacturer of uh, cardboard right a uh, lot of beautiful art on those cardboard i am not going to add much plastic and that is a decision because of you know how the world is and sure. how it will turn out I wanted to provide a an, a more affordable experience and also, what can you say, for, for those who don't paint, it will be a lot of gray blobs mashing on each other, right? So I wanted yeah. to have beautiful cardboard that also has all these stats and different things on so it's easier to play and all that. Yeah, and then there will be these envelopes, right? That you will be dying to opening and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know. Find out what kind of cards. So, yeah. I know before I pick my character's first campaign, I'm opening every single envelope and I'm going to say, <laughs> okay, what is this guy's stick? What does he do? I'm going to yeah. make my decisions. That You know, and you may have this, some sort of like a bio on the front to give me mm, an idea. Yeah. Like, is this person going to be running into the fray? And sw- Okay, good. Yeah, good, yeah. good. And I'm... <laughs> I'm not sure yet, but it will probably through some playtesting, I will put a level somewhere indicating whether or not the character is harder or easier to play. So if okay. you are very green on such game mechanics, you could take a more straightforward character, right? Because mm-hmm. some of them ha- have a bit more combo and a bit more, of course, can be a bit more rewarding in some ways, right? But they have some more advanced abilities that many of them will be available when you start looting packages and whatnot, but that's further mm-hmm. into the game. So then everyone is kind of accustomed to to those elements, right? Now, I know one so, thing that I noticed was whenever you said about the plastic miniatures, yeah, they're going to be great pieces of plastic that are going to be running all over the board. One thing I know I was telling Patrick was I was blown away by the artwork on those things. Mm. It sucked me in immediately. I don't know what it was. It just like scratched this part of my brain like, I need to know more about this universe. This It was such an interesting look to the characters. The artwork is fantastic. How you have the stats on the card worked out beautifully. I mean, there's something to be said about high-quality cardboard mm. standees that you use there. Works out really, really well. Great decision on that. Yeah, I, I think uh, for, for many it will be good that it's not plastic because it it will just be be more visually pleasing for the yes, eyes. And, yes, uh, yeah. oh, very much so. so. Yeah. One of the big things that have been hitting a lot of game designers all over, either on Kickstarter, mass market, whatever, is shipping. That's been really tying mm-hmm. things up. 
whenever I back something, first thing I look at is when can I get this thing in my hands? Is there any plans on like an idea on a ballpark delivery date on when someone could get a hold of this game? If the Kickstarter runs well here in February and will end in in early uh, March, I hope to be able to have delivered the game by next year, December next year, it would be. So December 2023. Yeah, exactly. That seems like a very reasonable time frame. Yeah. Not overly optimistic, realistic. (laughs) Yeah. I need some time for it. And luckily, when it comes to shipping, I, I should have my location, what can you say, on my side of the equation. Because if I can get it produced at Ludofact in Germany, mm-hmm. it's shipping from Germany, which means for Europe, it's all fine. And for America, the problem with shipping is not from Europe to America. I mean, I, I should be able to avoid the worst of such. Okay. I'm letting my geek flag fly here from Star Trek <laughs> Next Generation with Scotty telling Jordy, you got to play a play by the rules here where you tell someone it's going to take longer than it takes. So if it comes out earlier, you look like a hero. So that's a wonderful thing there. I mean, if you say it's December 2023 and things line up and it comes through, boy, oh boy. I mean, that's going to be spectacular there. So fingers crossed that everything lines up beautifully for you. Whew, yeah, me too. No <laughs> pressure. <laughs> no pressure, no. <laughs> well, Emil, before we let you sign off and, and tell us where we can find out more about Rogue Angels and Sun Tzu Publishing, we like to give designers who join us on the Level Up Board Game podcast a chance to you yourself level up. How's that sound? Okay, level up. That sounds great. There's <laughs> okay. always room for level up. Yeah. Scott, he's going to do all right with this. Scott, yeah, do you have yeah, a stopwatch yeah. ready? I'm all set now. We just want to say that I think that Jamie Stegmaier has the top time right now. He's got the record. Yes, yes. So we're going to see how you do on this. We're going to ask you eight questions. I just want the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Scott, you say when. All right. Get set. Go. Which character in Rogue Angels are you most excited about? Oh, that would be Sigyn, I think. Given one hour to do so, could you eat an entire chocolate cake? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Board Board Game Geek credits three artists for the absolutely stunning work in this game. How in the hell do you pronounce their names? Dingan and um, Presmek. Oh, my. That's not good. Stegmeier's going to hold on to this record. (laughs) Yeah. They are all kind. I mean, and yeah. <laughs> and to me, uh, Alex is actually his real name. On a world map with only land and water, could you point out where Pittsburgh is? <laughs> Perhaps. I mean, you... for a Chinese guy, and, uh, I, it's it's to the west. So <laughs> very, very good. It's to the west of the Atlantic. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> How do you say "level up" in Danish? You said you're from uh, Denmark. Yeah. You actually, oh, we have adopted so many, so many <laughs> English words. It's like, that's embarrassing. Yeah. Opgradeer. Um, What's your favorite song ever? Uh, that must be uh, Billie Jean with yeah, Michael Jackson, of course. If you got into a triple threat, three-way wrestling match, you, me, and King Scott, who would win? <laughs> oh, I can win on speed, I think. <laughs> And Emil, we noted that you're a lieutenant in the Danish army. Yeah, that's not a question. We just thought it was really cool. (laughs) 
yeah. first lieutenant actually oh, oh, former well, first man. lieutenant yes sir <laughs> what do you think scott is that a level up i think that is definitely a most impressive level up well done, sir. Well done, Emil. Oh, thanks. I'm captain then. <laughs> Great. Emil, we're very, very thankful that you took the time to talk with us here. Yeah. And I know yesterday, okay. going through our uh, run through the game, right away I was hooked. And it made me want to know more about this universe. And hearing you say that there's novels and everything else, where can anyone find all this stuff about this universe and learn more about what you have behind Rogue Angels right now? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on and for you doing all this, I think is very appropriate <laughs> to say. I mean, no, really, it's 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 uh, really cool that you want to have me on and, and I, I really like your work. Oh, thank you. So, thank you. I mean, for finding me, um, yeah, Emil Larsen is way too popular a Danish name, so that's not going to work. But SunsuGames.com. <laughs> SunsuGames is uh, like S-U-N-T-Z-U games. We'll put it in the com. show notes. Yeah, because <laughs> that's also hard to spell. Um, and, and Burning Suns or Rogue Angels, I think you will you will find it on BoardGameGeek or if you have the passion to, to see what uh, such a game looks like, you will find it, I'm sure. It well, thank really you for does. joining us. You know what, Scott? I was going to be a, a say a heartfelt thing. <laughs> no, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, 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 no. I'm all heartfelt out. Go ahead. Is that the end of this side quest? <laughs> I think it's the end of the side quest. Emil, thank you. Good luck. We'll keep an eye on the thank Kickstarter. You. I'm going to make it an issue to try and be backer number one. Cool. That will be tough. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much, Emil. Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember... You can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.